0: Recovery Elevator, episode 43.
1: Feels like I should have known better. I should be able to moderate. I should be able to stop myself.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober at the time of this recording for one year, three months, and two days, or right around 15 months, which I am stoked on. On today's podcast, I've got Shannon. She's a professional psychologist. She's been sober for 78 days, and she is a high-bottom drunk. What's a high-bottom drunk? It's an alcoholic or a drunk who hasn't had to have multiple DUIs to fully understand that they're an alcoholic. They haven't had to lose everything in their life, including their job, their loved ones, their dignity, their pride, all the above. It's somebody who who realized or recognized that their elevator was going down and it was going down at a rate or a clip that they weren't comfortable with. Those people, they reached out. They did not do the official recovery elevator elevator dance. They hit the button, the elevator stopped and they walked off. I make it sound like these people easily got off the elevator. I'm not saying that at all. I have a tremendous amount of respect for a high bottom drunk and people could look at my story and say, Paul, you're also a high bottom drunk but it's all relative. I lived with internal agony and misery for almost a decade. Not all of it. And sure, there were some bright spots. There was a release of a Third Eye Blind album in that time frame, but you get the point. Just the confusing part, the baffling part, is why all of us have to ride the elevator so far down before we get off. So Shannon, a nice job on being a high-bottom drunk. I hope that never changes. As I mentioned in episode 42, I am going to give a full and detailed list of ways to stay sober over the holidays. In fact, there are 63 of them. As I mentioned, on my drive home to Colorado for Thanksgiving, I recovered. I listened to several recovery podcasts on the 12-hour drive home. One of them was the Bubble Hour. Fantastic podcast. The topic of the podcast that I listened to was ways to stay sober over the holiday season. I heard a myriad of clever responses to give people when they ask you, hey, would you like a drink when you go attend their holiday party? They were all great. However, the one that I have found through personal experience in my journey, it's a response that's not good, it's not great, it's the best response. And we've been taught our entire lives to actually tell the right answer, which is the truth. It's never wrong to tell the truth. It's never wrong to tell the right reason. But I understand it's extremely difficult. It's scary. I know from firsthand experience, but I have learned that simply telling the truth works the best. Hey, Paul. Thanks for coming. First off. Damn. That is an ugly Christmas sweater. Second, what can I get you to drink a beer a glass of wine? Oh, thanks, Tom. Actually, I don't drink. What follows your answer is not an awkward silence. What you'll find response nine out of 10 times is, oh, that's awesome, Paul. You can put your coat over there. Make yourself at home. So that's a response of four out of five people. And that is only in my experience. So take this into an account. But what about the other 20%? Well, 20% of the other responses are going to sound a little bit like this. Well, Paul, that's, that's great. What, um, how can you stop drinking? I mean, were, were you drinking too much? And when I got those questions at first, I was terrified. I could feel the anxiety building in my stomach. And I just wanted to find a tree and climb up it and hide. Preferably a tree with a lot of branches. But what I found is those people, they're usually asking for a relative, for a loved one, or they might personally be struggling with alcohol themselves. And you simply telling the truth, believe it or not, it's extremely empowering. Now I've got 95% of the responses covered. There's another 5%. And here they are. And for me, it's probably not even 5%. It might even be like a 1% to 2%. It's the haters. Haters are going to hate. It's the people that say, oh, come on, Paul. It's New Year's. It's a Christmas party. You got to have a beer. For me, at least, this number is low. If this number is high for you, probably in like the teens, the 20s, the 30s, or 40s, or 50%, hate to break it to you. You got to find new friends. All right, Recovery Elevator. I've got 63 ways to help you stay sober over the holidays. Now, I've never claimed to be professional in this topic, nor do I claim this to be a fully comprehensive list where if you do relapse over the holidays, you can't be like Paul. I did all 63 of those, and I even added two extra ones, and I got drunk. So no claims on this list. In fact, I'm sure I'm going to re-listen to this podcast a month or so down the road and be like, whoa, I left out a couple huge ones. So here goes. Number one, hang out with another alcoholic. That guy, Bill, yeah, he was onto something there. Number two. Dedicate five minutes today, 10 minutes tomorrow, and 15 minutes the next day, and increase by five minutes each day after that on a dormant hobby that you used to love so much. This could be the guitar, model trains, that was you, Paul. Knitting or swimming, the possibilities are endless. Number three, find conduits to your higher power. Conduit, a way to connect with your higher power. This could be in the forest. This could be in the snow. This could be listening to the Trans-Siberian Orchestra while at Starbucks, painting, or doing whatever else you love. Number four, music. Listen to music. Have you heard flamenco recovery elevator? It's a genre. It is incredible. Number five, write a letter to a friend. Nope, not an email, but place a stamp on an envelope, lick that envelope, physically walk it out to the mailbox and send it out. Number six, write down five things you are thankful for each day. Sounds easy. My first sponsor requested this of me. After 16 days, I opened up my notebook and I had eight things listed. Wasn't that I wasn't thankful is that even this small task was extremely difficult. Now, this is what happens five times a week in the mornings. Usually before 6. am, I say, Hey Siri, set my timer for five minutes and it actually works. And I write gratitude in my diary, in my journal for five minutes. Number seven, have a sit down chat with your addiction. Hey, Gary, Paul here is we both know the holidays are approaching and I fully understand you got a job to do. You're going to try to sabotage every day, every night, but look, just keep it in check. I understand you're there. I fully respect you, Gary, but it's going to be different this year. Number eight, call a family member that isn't an immediate family member and just simply tell them how much you appreciate them. Now, this could be an uncle, an aunt, a cousin. Number nine, when in a drive-thru, preferably not a fast food drive-thru, pay for the person behind you. Number 10, cartwheels. 94% of cartwheels result in laughter and are a great time. The other 6% result in broken coffee tables. Number 11, go to a 12-step meeting. That should have been number 12, anyways. Number 12, buy paint, get a canvas, and start painting or creating. Number 13, go on a three-mile walk or a hike where there's no cell service, or make it a point to just simply leave your cell phone at home. Number 14, write down the goal of not drinking over the holidays, and then place this goal in a place where you're going to see it every day, like on your bathroom mirror or inside your gym locker. I guess that is if you work out every day. Number 15, volunteer your time at the animal shelter and walk some dogs. You never know in Montana, you might be able to show up and walk something cool like a pig, a goat, or a donkey. There's a reason dogs are service animals. Their company is therapeutic and they don't judge. This dog is going to think you're the bee's knees for simply taking it for a walk. It makes you feel good. Win-win both sides. Number 16. Affirmation. Remind yourself daily that you will not be drinking because you have an allergy to alcohol. Number 17. Read a book. More specifically, A Drinking Story by Carolyn Knapp. Number 18. When someone asks if you want to drink at his or her Christmas party, you're going to respond with, Is your snowmobile insured? Number 19. Stay a minimum of 300 feet away from Burger King, McDonald's, Arby's, and Wendy's at all times. Number 20. Pray. Number 21. Say the serenity prayer out loud to yourself while looking into the mirror. Side note, how do you feel when you look at yourself in the mirror? Number 22, learn the serenity prayer in a different language. Dios, concédeme serenidad para aceptar las cosas que no puedo cambiar. Valor para cambiar aquellas que puedo y sabiduría para reconocer la diferencia. That would be my gringo, Spanish, Mexican accent in Spanish. Number 23, make it a point to get outside of your comfort zone. Number 24, be okay with uncomfortable feelings. Take 10 minutes and simply feel those uncomfortable feelings. Number 25, get capital R-E real with yourself. Number 26, hot tea, hot tea and more hot tea. And hot tea that is not injected full of caffeine. Number 27, podcasts. Listen to a lot of recovery podcasts, not just Recovery Elevator. There are a lot of other great ones out there. Number 28, read. Read and be a sponge. Number 29, go through your cabinets remove anything with over 10 grams of sugar on the carton. Also look for bags of sugar, powdered sugar, and stashes of Reese's Pieces. Number 30, cook some Brussels sprouts. Things are delicious. Number 31, when somebody asks if you want a drink at their party, tell them you don't drink. Number 32, when that person asks why you don't drink, answer their question unequivocally. Number 33, we're a little over halfway there, Recovery Elevator. Number 33, ask Siri to set the timer for five minutes. For the first minute, while in a calm, still place, sit down. But keep your eyes open but just and focus on the sounds. Minute two, breathe in for five seconds and exhale for five seconds. Minute three, close your eyes. Tell yourself what you're thankful for. Minute four, pump yourself up with affirmations. Like Paul Churchill, today we're going to do something awesome because just like that, we are awesome. Alcohol kicked my ass for a long time. I need to build myself up at times. And the fifth minute, just let your mind go and embrace it. Number 34, goals. Write down your goals. And 95% of people don't write down their goals. And 95% of people who don't write down their goals don't achieve their goals. Think that one through. Number 35, wake up before the sun comes up five days in a row. Number 36, put your alarm clock on the other side of the room so you physically got to get out of bed to turn that thing off. And then when it is off, tell yourself, well, I'm already up. I might as well get the day going. Number 37, write down who your recovery team is. It doesn't matter if you're drunk now or even have 10 years of sobriety. Be clear with who is on your recovery team in case of emergency. This is just like having the baby bag packed by the door, ready for a baby to be born in pregnancy. And I know nothing about any of that. Not sure why that was the most applicable analogy that just came to mind. Number 38, avoid self-loathing like the plague. In other words, don't kick the crap out of yourself if you relapse, if you drink, if you eat sugary foods. Number 39, get to know your addiction. My addiction, his name is Gary, and I have a lot of respect for Gary. Number 40, realize whoever or whatever that God thing is, just remember, you're not it. Number 41, find a way to create accountability. Tell someone you're planning on quitting drinking or to stay sober through the holidays. Or if you got a little bit of sober time at the holiday party, tell somebody you plan to have less than 10 eggnogs. That shit is delicious. Number 42, do not judge yourself. Be truly accepting of who you are and embrace it. Number 43, call your sponsor. If you don't have one, get one. Number 44, acceptance is the answer. That's my favorite paragraph in that big blue book. On page 417, find a way to accept your current situation. Number 45, get creative. Create something with clay, pick up a new instrument, use your mind to create something. Number 46, learn a new skill or task. YouTube is a great resource for this. Just type in how to and so many cool things pop up. Number 47, do yourself a favor, be proactive and remove some temptations. There are some obvious ones like remove that bottle of tequila out of your pantry, but also maybe get rid of that maple syrup that just stares right in front of you when you open up that refrigerator door. Number 48, have an exit strategy in place at all times. Number 49, give up control. Number 50, hang out with that group of friends who implausibly seem to be enjoying themselves at all times without alcohol. God, those guys. Number 51, defriend five negative or non-supportive friends on Facebook. Or just unfollow them. You don't have to defriend them, but you don't need to be seeing negative energy all the time from the same people. 52, building off the right to goals down. Write it down don't drink today. Number 53, celebrate. Milestones are huge. Don't forget to celebrate the milestones. Number 54, if you get knocked down or you relapse, get back up. Number 55, reward yourself with a treat. The treat obviously shouldn't be booze or should not consist of 92% sugar. 56, stay busy. 57, remind yourself the last 256 times you planned to only have a couple of beers tonight, it didn't end up as planned. Number 58, Netflix, HBO, and Hulu. Great quality program. Get your mind occupied. Number 59, learn a new recipe. One that doesn't involve maple syrup as a blanket to make it more delicious. Number 60, check out some animals in their natural environment. If you live in a city, a zoo is pretty cool. Actually, one of my best sober birthdays took place at the Denver Zoo. Number 61, go-karts. Enough said. Number 62, do the steps. Number 63, the last one, and in no sequential order of importance, remind yourself, Paul, it was your brilliant ideas that got you into those predicaments in the past. It was your genius ideas and plans to control your drinking that simply didn't work. So, Paul, you need to recognize and accept maybe you're not the smartest guy in the room or even close to it, and you definitely don't have all the answers. I hope that list helps you stay sober. I know it's going to help myself stay sober. Now, before we hang out with Shannon, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.sobernation.com. Once again, that's Sobernation.com. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to get right into this. Shannon, how long have you been sober?
1: Today is 78 days, thanks to my recovery elevator app. I am counting every
0: day. Hey, I got that same app. That's awesome, Shannon. Good job. And seriously, 78 days, that's not chump change. That's that's a great foundation to build on. Congratulations. And Shannon, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe let us know where you're from, what you do for a living, how old you are, are you married, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun?
1: Great. So I uh, was originally born and bred in the Midwest, so from hardy Midwestern stock and from a family who likes to drink a lot, Irish Catholic family and so we, you know, booze was always part of our celebrations and experiences. And I'm 45 years old, but I've since moved out to the West Coast. So now I live not far from Napa Valley, which is a great place to be if you're an alcoholic and um, also a great place to be if you're in recovery because they have a ton of meetings and because there's so much temptation all around, people uh, are really supportive for uh, people who have, who have taken on a little too much of that industry or people who have decided that they don't want to drink anymore. But I'm 45 and I have a daughter. She's nine years old and she's really great. And I, uh, for work, I'm a psychologist and mostly I, I teach and do consulting and kind of research gigs. And some of the things that we do for fun, um, mostly because I'm a single mom, I'm not married now, I'm recently divorced. And so it's her and I, and yesterday we were tossing a football around the living room or I bought an Xbox. Right after I got sober and decided to stop drinking, I bought an Xbox so that we could just dance in our living room and play Fruit Ninja and have some things we could do together that weren't about sitting down and having pizza and a glass of wine. And um, so we, we like to sing and dance around the living room, even though that sounds crazy, probably it's actually a lot of fun. And recently, I have reintegrated karaoke into my life. So even though the karaoke is at a dive bar up the street, I've still found a way to go with friends who know I'm sober, friends even who drink themselves, but they know that I just want ginger ale. And so they will come and join me and I get up there and sing in front of a crowd of people. Yeah, so I love to do that. And it makes me terribly anxious and get kind of both anxious and excited at the same time. So I get to have a rush of feeling very safe and invigorating kind of environment so I wasn't able to do that for the first month or two that I was sober but in the last couple of weeks I've been able to integrate that too
0: yeah and Shannon you sound like a pretty cool mom you just got an Xbox you recently integrated karaoke into your life I've got a friend whose mom recently integrated yard work into her life or gardening karaoke that's awesome congratulations on that that's really really cool now Shannon, (laughs) referencing the podcast title Let's talk about your elevator. And Recovery Elevator, Shannon and I met via email. She had reached out to me at info at recoveryelevator.com, and she had classified herself, and I agree with this, as a high-bottom drunk. Because a couple years ago, or three, four years ago, I always thought that an alcoholic, they had to reach a fiery depth of hell and go through such turmoil and torture, you know, like you know, DUIs, jail time, all the stuff like that. In a high-bottom drunk, it really has not had those type of events occur in their life. Keyword, here it comes, yet. Now, I'm not saying there is not mental torture and anguish that, you know, Shannon, you've gone through or other high-bottom drunks, but a lot of times we think that people have to go to the very end of this thing and ride the elevator so far down. So, Shannon, talk to us about your elevator. When did you decide you're done drinking, you decided to get off the elevator?
1: Sure. Because I'm from this large and rather alcoholic family, I have known all along. My dad was alcoholic until I was about five. And when I was five, he got sober and he was very open about his drinking and his use and his family. And I lost family members in drinking and driving accidents and have seen plenty of people in my life struggle with alcoholism. So I didn't start using until very, very late relative to most people. So I drank some in college and Never really to excess, but you know, some. And um, then I was in a marriage for a long time, married for 15 years to a guy we didn't really drink. So it wasn't until I was divorced and a single mom, and uh, working full time and commuting and doing those kinds of tough life adult things and trying to confront life head on in spite of these. Other events that were out of my control, like getting a divorce, or uh, you know, sort of things that my ex was involved in, and so I didn't really start developing a problem until after I was in my forties, mid forties. But what happened after I got divorced? I started dating a guy who was a fairly heavy drinker, and. I think that I may have picked someone who was a fairly heavy drinker because it was someone who was familiar and a lifestyle that was familiar. And I have sort of had an obsession all through my life with drinking and alcoholism. So it hasn't been an obsession with the booze itself, but it's been an obsession just with drinking and what that looks like and drug use and substance use and addiction. Sure. And I'm a psychologist, so I... Took to that even like it's something that I like to read about and study about. So I've had this obsession but never really had a problem. So then, in my mid forties, finding myself single, divorced, mom, commuting, and my daughter has a has an illness, so then I'm a single mom of a kid who got this sickness. There's a lot of stressors in my life, and it's expensive to live where I live, paying bills, all of these things. And uh, so I started with a guy who came, who was who was a fairly heavy drinker, and I think I picked him or got close to him in part due to that. And so we started doing the fun kind of drinking, like wine tastings and we had Manhattans on our first date. And so it was, it just started to be a bit of a slippery slope into drinking more and more frequently. And I did things like keep a counter on my phone. So I'd know that I wouldn't be drinking too much or monitoring my own use. And it got to be about in the middle of the first year that we were dating that I said, Hey, you're drinking too much. I'm starting to drink too much. I can't drink anymore. Then in the second year, now I was drinking even more, which it wasn't actually a lot by quantity, which when you think about someone who has an addiction to a substance, you'd expect that they drink several nights a week or that they drink every night and they drink bottles every night. or they. And for some people, it's like that. But for me, I would still drink only like seven to ten drinks a week, never any more than that because I was hyper vigilant about it. Hmm. But it was the way that I was drinking, and I was drinking then to you know I would have or two or three drinks in a night, and it's really too much for someone like me. And it was it felt like I was chasing something, or really at risk of slipping in even deeper to having even more of a problem than just a couple of nights a week having a couple of glasses of wine. And so he and I broke up and in the, cause I said, I can't drink this much anymore. So already I was sort of vigilant about my youth and wanting to slow down. But after we broke up, I started using then even more. And even if it was still seven to 10 drinks a week, I was chasing after something and using. So I'd be scheduling nights out with girlfriends and I would stay out after work and go and have a drink on my way home or I would just starting to plan my life a little more and more around alcohol and when I could have a glass of wine and I'd buy the cheap wine at the store with the screw top so that way I could close it back up. So if I didn't want to have a drink for three or four days, I could go a couple of days without it, but then I could open it back up again <laughs> and drink it. Crazy. kind of having these crazy, you know, or tell myself, can you have one glass tonight? And I know a lot of times you ask about that. Do you set up, you know, do you set up kind of safeguards for yourself? And I was doing that left and right.
0: Well, tell and me about some of those. Just, what, what were some of the patterns and safe holds and plans in place that you had?
1: Yes. So things like only, you know, I could only drink like three or four nights a week, but then I could have three glasses in that night. Or I would count the drinks on my app because there's apps about how much you're drinking. And mm-hmm. so I would make sure it always averaged less than seven drinks a week. Or I would, you know, do some, some uh, sometimes I tried like not drinking alone so that I would be responsible to someone else besides myself, you know, counting exactly how much alcohol I was consuming and whether it was one serving or two servings. Cause a margarita actually a Cadillac margarita is like three servings of booze. But if I was counting that as one drink, then I could actually, if I had two of those, then it would be six. So, <laughs> you know, doing all kinds of like different cartwheels in my head to try and figure it out. Was but it hard to ask stop me about,
0: after you started?
1: You know, actually, I never had like cravings necessarily like physiological, I may not have had a physiological addiction to alcohol, but I for sure had that mental obsession. And I had, I was growing a dependency, not physiologically, but psychologically, and wanting to avoid all the rest of the junk that happens in my life, like single, trying to date, doing work, commuting, bills. So I was wanting to avoid some of those things. And I could feel myself getting further and further away from what I actually wanted, which is I want a great career. I want a really solid relationship with my daughter. And so by doing the things I was doing, like trying to chase after finding a better job or chase after finding the man of my dreams, it was actually moving me further and further away from my goals because I wasn't going to find those things on a bar stool. I wasn't going to find those things going out with friends or doing happy hours to try and meet someone, career network. So I did start to feel, I felt myself sort of slipping further and further away from what I wanted. And I knew that I reached the bottom what I what was a horrible event for me happened. So I I had actually ended up, I was out on a Monday night after work because I was cranky about my job. And I met somebody who said, oh, I'm doing this wine tasting tomorrow. You should come. So then on Tuesday night, I went to a wine tasting and it was fun and fine and I didn't drink too much, but I thought, okay. And that Sunday I had, tickets for another wine tasting. And when you live where we live, and there's a lot of places in the country, I think that are like this, where alcohol is just part of the thing. It's just part of the profile. Like everybody drinks and everybody uses and everybody, you know, people do cocaine and it's just part of your daily experience. It doesn't seem that unusual, but I was Scheduling then to go to two wine tastings in this week and I had gone out a couple other nights or had another night where I was out with friends and a couple of drinks and so I just consumed way more in this one week than what would be typical and when I was at the wine tasting on Sunday, I wasn't with my daughter, I was alone and because I was alone, probably I really wasn't monitoring how much I was drinking. And I saw this handsome guy and started chatting with him, and he was one of the wine taster people, so he kept pouring more booze into my cup and I was drinking it and so I just kept drinking and I don't remember driving home that day, mm-hmm. and I don't remember a bunch of what happened afterwards
0: is that one and of the first so times you've had a blackout
1: it was it's I believe it's the only time I've ever had a blackout, and that was enough to scare me to death. And I couldn't remember even a couple of hours after that experience. And I probably drove 15 miles, something like that, on busy highways in the middle of a Sunday afternoon. I stopped at a store because I needed to pick something up and don't really remember going through the store. And I ended up with my daughter later and can remember when I was with her. So thank God I was by myself and not with her so that if something were to happen, she would not have been harmed. And then, so I started coming out of the blackout at about seven or eight o'clock at night and put her to bed. And then all through that night, just having anxiety all night long about p- trying to piece together the events of the afternoon. And for me, I have I have two uncles that have died in drinking and driving accidents, including one of my godfathers. And wow. that's I can't I can't be someone who drinks like that. I just can't. It's too risky. For me, so even if I wasn't drinking much quantity or I didn't get a DUI that day, it's 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 almost this. It feels the same for me that I reached a maximum or a minimum, (laughs) reached the ground floor. That there is no lower bottom for me, and it's just not worth the risk for me of continuing to use. So that next morning, Monday morning, I texted my little brother who's sober and six years sober, God bless him, and said. I need help. I have got to stop. And I texted a close friend who I knew, um, who I had earlier helped in her recovery, said, I need to stop. And she came over later that morning and we went to a meeting. We removed all the bottles of wine. I had lots of wine, pricey bottles of wine in my house. And we removed all of that and donated them to a local church and started going to meetings that day. And then that was 78 days ago.
0: Shannon, can you like write an ebook or a course or maybe do your own podcast on how to get sober? Because I got to tell you, that's that's like textbook. And you made all those hard decisions like you hit your bottom and you realized you had a problem. The next day, you probably sent some difficult text messages out to your brother, to your friends and family. Mm -hmm. You got help. I mean, all these things happened in such a rapid succession that there's a majority of us. We just can't do. We just start banging our heads against the wall. What was that like when you, you first called your brother?
1: Terrifying. It was terrifying. I was terrified to reach out like that. Terrified. I knew that. I think I actually also knew, maybe you had this experience, that I didn't have other options. I did not have other options. There was no way that I could drink and stop myself from driving again. And there was no other option. So it was somehow my fear over the, the not yet. It was my fear over getting a DUI next. It was my fear over not being able to stop drinking that had me say, I've got to stop. And I didn't know, it was a helpful reaction from my little brother who just said five minutes. You just don't have to drink for the next five minutes. Fine. I will help you just make it through today. Next five minutes, five minutes, just make it through today, five Mm -hmm. minutes at a time. And I had no idea what the journey was going to look like. I did not know what that path would be to sobriety. And they don't write pathways for people who maybe don't have a substance use disorder, who, you know, aren't incarcerated. So that's how they get sober. They go to jail. The, The pathway wasn't clear, and maybe it's not clear for anybody when they stop using. But I just had to hold on to the hope that my life would be better without alcohol than it would be with alcohol. And if I could just hold on to that hope and make it through another five minutes without drinking, I figured the path would come to me. And I was hopeful, actually. I didn't know that it would. I didn't even think it would. But I was hopeful that maybe the path would come to me. And it was maybe about day 45 or 50 that I thought, hey, wow, I'm actually on a path. And now I see the path. And now I know better what the path is. And it probably includes a couple of meetings a week. It includes doing some of the routine things that you talk about. Like I step outside every morning, I go outside my door and I breathe in the air every morning, like fresh air. And I drink a glass of water every morning. One of the first things I do. There we go. And I say my serenity prayers or whatever I say, I ask for peace and openness and gratitude. And I go just with whatever words are in my mind. And so now I have something that actually looks like a pathway and I still don't know where it's going to go. I have no idea. And for someone like me, I might be able to try moderation at some point in the future, but I sure don't feel that way today. And I really want to understand this better before I would even risk something like that. You know, I'm still exploring the path every day, but it feels a lot more solid now. And so now I know that I'm making the right steps. I did not know then. But luckily, a couple of people around me who were clean and sober did know. And so they were able to support me through those first couple of weeks and months, even.
0: Yeah. And Shannon, you don't need to know where the pathway is going tomorrow or the next day. All you got to know where the pathway is going today. That sounds like you started, you know, hydrating your body when the time is most dehydrated in the morning, stepping outside, almost like a meditative step. And that's, that's all you need to know is for today and back it up a little bit here. You know, every, you always hear knowledge is power. Well, knowledge is not power unless you do something (laughs) with it. Or you know your family has a history of alcoholism. You've had two uncles that had died in drunk driving accidents. And so you that knowledge of your DNA, your genetic makeup, and of what happened on that, that night and you know, made you lead to a conclusion. You're like, you know what? This is probably not going in the right direction. And I got to commend you, Shannon. I, d- I really don't know what would be harder for me to quit after an event like what you described or an event, you know, my, more my bottoms because or myself. And I'm sure a lot of other listeners, they hear that and like, wait, you blacked out and you drove home and, and that was your bottom. But I have so much respect for that because a lot of people, when they get home and the next morning they look outside and see their car, it's almost like their confidence builds. They're like, well, you know, I was blacked out and did that. That's pretty sweet. I didn't get caught. But for you, Shannon, you recognize what's coming down the pipeline. Congratulations. And I, I got to ask, we're, we're listeners, we're lucky to have a psychologist on the phone. Do you think your background helped you make that decision being a psychologist, Shannon?
1: I think for sure it must have. Um, But I don't know. I think the background of being from an alcoholic family probably helped me even more uh, just because I've been so exposed to it and seen it and seen the horrible things that can happen when someone gets addicted and just how hard it is to beat this illness. And so I think that that's what helps even more. And I, I think even just you know, being a human, being an adult, I always say it's so hard to be an adult. Oh, my God. I never knew how hard it was going to be to be an adult. So those kind of things and like having to make adult decisions and yeah. um, figure out life.
0: An adult with uh, an Xbox. Those kind of
1: things, right. Is an adult with an Xbox is more important. But the thing about the psychologist, it's a double-edged sword because I both know a lot about substance use disorders and those kind of things. Because, and I've even taught classes on substance use and addiction. So I do know a lot of the technical stuff. But that part, knowing all those things, also brings a lot up a bunch of shame for me because it feels like I should have known better. I should be able to moderate. I should be able to stop myself. One of the most helpful things I learned after I got sober or stopped drinking was that there's been a study that says that people who are from alcoholic families who have a, the genetic penchant for alcoholism, or substance use disorder, that their brains operate differently. And one of the key ways their brains operate differently is that when using substances, their frontal lobe essentially shuts off. And the frontal lobe of your brain is what does all of the planning. It's like Mm -hmm. called executive function, but it's all the planning stuff. And I thought, oh my God, that's what happened to me that day. I got wasted and my frontal lobe shut off. So someone else who's not doesn't have the alcoholism vulnerability or from a family or the genetic issue, their frontal lobe stays active, so they don't drive because their frontal lobe says, hey, stop, you can't drive, you're too drunk to drive. But if you have that alcoholic vulnerability, your brain works differently. So cutting off your frontal lobe says, I can drive, I got this, no problem, when that is totally delusional and wrong. And so I know now because of being a psychologist, I know some things better about alcoholism, but I didn't learn that thing about the brain, for example, until after I got sober and reading through more and more about alcoholism and the shame piece then of being someone who's a helper, or someone who should know better, that it took me several weeks and I'm sure I'm still not over it. And I'm even a little bit worried about being on the podcast because I don't necessarily want people I know. To say, whoa, she's a strong, powerful psychologist, and here she is, and she's failed. And it's only when you think about alcoholism or substance use as a moral thing that you term it failure, because it's really not failure. It's not something to feel shameful about. It's a disease, as everybody on your podcast has talked about, like diabetes, or Mm -hmm. it's not something to be shamed about. And actually... Early on in recovery, too, I thought, wow, other pe- if I said, I'm going to run every day, I'm running marathons, or I'm giving up sugar, or I've stopped eating carbs, everybody cheers and says, great, yay, good for you. And you give up alcohol, and people around you go, oh, no one <laughs> celebrates with you when you give up substance. I mean, people immediate, in your immediate circle do, but other people can look at it as like, oh, she's got a problem, or he has a problem. And I now think about it really differently that it's no different than I'm going to start running marathons or I'm giving up sugar or I'm just doing something to make my life more healthier. And, you know, other people maybe don't have problems with sugar, don't have problems with wine, don't have problems with these things. But I know that I do. And so I've just really had to overcome that shame and figure that maybe maybe it will make me able to help others more in the future. Also, to have worked through some of that. Related shame of being a helper who needs help themselves or being a helper maybe now because I've actually been through it, so I can see it in kind of a different way. I don't know if that
0: makes sense. No, it makes a hundred percent sense. I, Shannon, you are going to be able to help so many more people. With, with your background. And maybe if you are an alcoholic, maybe you're not an alcoholic, you're a high bottom drunk, but that experience alone is going to be able to expand your portfolio of clients, shall we say. And I find it so interesting what you said about the frontal lobe, because there are times, you know, before I went out drinking, I, you know, I've no intention of drinking and driving. Of course, after two drinks, I'm in a car driving. And I remember hearing my friends like, you know, I work, I'm sober now. And you know, after like three beers, they're like, Oh, I'm, I probably shouldn't drive. I'll call a cab. I'm just like, call oh. a cab? Like, how in the F are you doing this? Right? I mean, it, it just makes no sense. But what you said, and, and what was that book? Where did you read that?
1: I read it. I can find it for you. And maybe we can post a reference on the podcast. I read it in an, it was in an article that I found online, just, you know, cause now I'm reading everything about sobriety and, or it it might've also been, there's a book out that's called Drink and it's about women's relationships with alcohol. And a lot of women have different pathways than men do with their youth and for women for example it's just i know others have talked about this it's a slippery slope the slope is slipper more slippery so Uh women uh succumb faster to an illness so it may also have been in that book drink but i'll find it and i'll post it yeah and try to send me the link to
0: that article too i'd love to get it in the show notes this is going to be podcast episode i think 41 or 42. And Shannon, I'd like to introduce you to somebody. This person is named Gary and Gary is my damn addiction. I've kind of personified my addiction. And was that you, Shannon, that was you were giving me like the clinical term of when your addiction lies to you in your own voice. It's externalizing the addiction. Was that you who emailed me about that? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. What does that mean?
1: So it's it's just a theory that we use in psychology about the internalizing the disorder or externalizing the disorder is what we call it. And basically what it means is if you embrace the disorder itself as part of your identity. So if you have an eating disorder or you have some kind of personality disorder and you say that, you know, I am that thing. So my identity is that thing. And you believe in all the stigma that goes with having the disorder. You believe that the disorder controls your life so that the alcoholism controls your life or having bipolar disorder controls your life then you're internalizing the disorder and it's actually not very helpful because then all the decisions that you make are made with that lens of being someone who's flawed or someone who is uh, driven by the disease or the illness so we talk about it as externalizing the disorder where over time you just one just comes to realize that we are not defined by the disorder itself and So we can remove the disorder from the way that we think about our identities. Hmm. So for me, I am and I feel like I am an alcoholic uh, because I have the obsession, I have the thinking, and I know that it's part of my experiences, but it doesn't define who I am. And so when I hear that voice that says, Oh, a glass of wine would sound really great right now. And you should maybe just go for it. You know, who's going to notice? No one has to know you're home alone. Even right now, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. And I could pour myself a glass of Chardonnay or run to the grocery store and buy whatever I wanted and, and drink it all day if no one would even know. That I can realize that's the voice of the disorder. That's not Shannon's voice. That's the voice of the alcoholism. And Shannon would say, oh, no, that's not a good idea. Don't do that because that's going to lead you down a bad road in a slippery slope. And the disorder will say, oh, yeah, you should do that. So I have to externalize that voice. I've got to push it outside of me so that I can use my own voice. Even though I know that that, will, that voice will likely always be a part of me, it doesn't have to control me or define me. So we say then that externalizing the illness is is actually very helpful for people. And I've had to work on doing that myself, too, and encourage others to do it.
0: Oh, I love it. And I found out that my addiction, Gary, he actually can drive because mm-hmm. sometimes he just grabs a oh. steering wheel in my car and just turns it into the liquor store. It's it's just crazy. This guy, Gary, my addiction, uh, he's, just, he's, he's that good. But like you said, Is it I Gary that has it.
1: you buying Reese's Pieces too.
0: That's the damn Gary that... same Gary. That's the one. So Shannon, 78 days into your sobriety. Congratulations again. Talk to the listeners about what your portfolio of recovery consists of these days. So maybe walk us through a sample day. You also mentioned you go to meetings. Or Do you have a sponsor, meditation, exercise? Yeah, walk us through a sample day of the life of Shannon's recovery portfolio.
1: Great. So, um, yeah, I'm doing a lot of things. It actually takes a lot of time, and I'm hoping the time I'm investing now is going to pay off down the road so that these things will become more integrated into my everyday life because I still feel very early in this journey so some of the things then that I do now consistently that I didn't do before I do step outside every morning I have a glass of water or two every morning I make sure I have that before I've even had my coffee I'm down in a couple glasses of water Um, I, I did start going to meetings. Early on, I thought, "How do people stop drinking? Well, they go to meetings, So I just started going to meetings, and I did do thirty and thirty meetings the first month, mostly because they didn't know what else to do, and they say that meetings work. Some people say they don't, but I think it was at least worth trying, so I did thirty meetings and and did then even more, you know, continued going to meetings. And I only recently got a sponsor because I was terrified to get a sponsor. Somebody in one of these meetings had said that they picked up the 5,000-pound phone. And I thought, oh, yeah, that was me. That phone was awfully heavy for me to pick up the phone and call and say, would you sponsor me? And it's my plan, you know, in some of the 12-step groups, you go through the steps and you work the steps, they call it. So it's my plan to work the steps. So I wanted to get a sponsor just to work the steps and even just to see how that will help me to do the steps. So she and I are doing the steps together. But apart from that, I'm integrating a lot of other smaller things. I started doing massage, so I will go once a month and get a massage, and it kind of works out the kinks. And I figure the massage is cheaper than the bottles of wine I was buying, cheaper than trip to the psych ward. It's cheaper than therapy to get a massage, so I'll go get a massage. And- <laughs> yeah. Right, it's cheaper. Cheaper definitely. than a trip to the psych ward, for sure. Oh, I could check myself into the fanciest hotel in the world, and it'd be cheaper than a tour through the psych ward. When I was on one of those massages, I realized how tight my body was and how much tension I was carrying like all over and all of my muscles. So I thought, boy, I got to stretch. I'm not doing any exercise. I'm not stretching. So I thought, okay, I'll start yoga. So I've been integrating yoga and it sort of makes it sound like, wow, you know, I, she meditates, she does yoga. She is, you know, goes to meetings and it sounds all fabulous it's not as romantic or glamorous as it sounds. Basically, it's a survival strategy. You know, I try to get in three meetings a week right now. I try to get in three trips to yoga a week. I meditate when I can, which is sometimes in the middle of the day for four minutes. It's sometimes at night as I'm falling asleep. It's sometimes at 2 a.m. when those anxious thoughts wake me up and I think, wow, you know, I got to like calm myself down. So it's, it's not as pretty as what it sounds like when you talk about it, it's it's. I'm just I'm trying to squeeze it into the cracks in my life where I can find extra time to be working a little bit on my sobriety, and and I'm doing that to prevent the overwhelm that happens when I start to get angry or upset or sad or fearful, and those moments also still creep up all the time. And in those moments, what I've found that helps me the most is I'll think whoa, I would love a glass of wine right now. And my next thought is, what what is it that I'm trying to, what am I not feeling? Mm-hmm. What, what feeling am I trying to avoid? By you know, my brain goes right to the Chardonnay, but what can, what am I actually trying to avoid? And then if I can sit even for a couple of seconds to be like, is this sadness? Is this fear? Is this anxiety? Is this, you know, anger? What is it? And and then I just try to sit with those feelings even for a moment or two or a couple of minutes or 10 minutes if I can to so that I can feel them legitimately without having to stuff them or suppress them or avoid them and, and get even more agitated by them. So those those I, I, the other thing that really helped me, so those are a couple of things I'm doing. The other thing I did, I pulled in super close. So what I mean by that is I one of the biggest rewards for me of not drinking is the time that I got back spending with my daughter. So I'm not going out as much. I'm not making all these nights with friends where I, you know, where we go and we go to the bar and listen to, you know, have a couple of drinks and a nice dinner. Like I'm not doing those things as much. So I get to, I'm closer to home. I'm, I, and then when I'm at home, I'm not distracted by having a glass of wine or even distracted by the thoughts of when am I going to get my next glass of wine, which those thoughts take up a lot of space. So I'm able to fill that time with my relationship with her and, you know, keeping my house in order. Like I think you at one point had said making your bed in the morning. And so I'm spending time instead, like kind of trying to keep my house in order and, and get bills paid. And, you know, it's making me more effective and more efficient in my day to day stuff that I'm not drinking and it's for sure making my relationship with my daughter that much sweeter. That's been the biggest reward. And the thing that helps me most to avoid um, going back is is that connection that I have to her and being fully, fully present with her for as much as I can be.
0: That sounds like a very full recovery portfolio with just 78 days of sobriety. Girl, I think you got it figured out. Nice job. And just, just keep mm-hmm. it going. And, and again, don't, don't think too far down the line because it's really just today is... Is how far the plan's gotta go to. And just don't drink today. That's it.
1: Don't drink today. Don't That's drink right. Today. Don't drink today. That's it. And Shannon,
0: <laughs> we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within thirty to sixty seconds, that'd be great. Are you ready?
1: Yes, I am ready.
0: Numero Uno Shannon, what was the worst memory from drinking?
1: It's that anxiety after the blackout. It was that all night long anxiety that just kept me up. Every ten minutes I was awake again. Like, what am I gonna do? Holy Cow, what was that that just happened? That anxiety. It was so intense, piercing anxiety
0: Hmm. that night. Anxiety is the worst. Next question What's your favorite resource in recovery?
1: Uh, That I'd have to say it's the podcast and education. So I found Recovery Elevator that morning and started listening and haven't stopped listening. And, you know, some of the books, like there's a book that's called Almost Alcoholic, which Hmm. is really great, that talks about the shades of gray between the not normie and alcoholic, what are the shades of gray or that book drink about women's relationships. So really it's an educational stuff that makes me feel less alone and makes me feel more normal actually, because there's lots of people who struggle with this thing. And so it's the the books and the podcasts. And then I also would have to say the people. So, you know, having people I can text and say, "Whoa, I'm having a hard time. I can't make it to this football game. Everybody's trashed around me. What am I going to do? That holiday was really hard. Halloween was so hard for me. I don't know if that's true for everybody, Um, but having people then that I could reach out to. Wait, are you you
0: saying you first listened to Recovery Elevator podcast on day one of sobriety?
1: Day one of sobriety, the morning of, and you had just put out a new one because it was like 6 a.m. on a Monday morning, and and I found it, and you were maybe on like episode 12, something like that, and I started at episode one. And all those early ones about am I alcoholic or not? What is this? What happens if I want to stop drinking? What if I don't want to stop drinking? All those early episodes were critically important to my recovery. So, so, so helpful.
0: Did you know what you were searching for in iTunes or did you just search for like drunk, I'm an alcoholic or how to quit drinking? How did you find recovery recovery?
1: I, yeah, I went to the apps basically and said, there's got to be a sobriety app. There's got to be stuff about being sober. Mm-hmm. And so I searched in there and I don't know what terms I searched, but maybe recovery, maybe sober, maybe wow. sobriety and it came up, and I have listened to a couple others since then, but Recovery Elevator is the one that I like the most and that I get the most out of.
0: Wow. Well, thanks for saying so it's been that, great. Shannon. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. And next question, Shannon, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you have ever received?
1: I'll focus on the similarities, not the differences. Love I've it. heard you and a thousand other people, say and because I'm because uh, I have a different pathway than people who have been incarcerated, multiple DUIs. I have a different pathway, but boy, at the core, it is exactly the same. It, it is the, at the core, it is the same. And I don't have to worry then about am I alcoholic enough to be in an AA meeting? Which I actually had oh, those thoughts. Crazy.
0: Yeah, me too. But, me too. It's
1: <laughs> crazy, right? At the core, we've all got yeah. it. And we we all get it. And so to be around other people who also get it, so I can focus on the similarity that we share that we get it, that this illness is a bitch and it's a beast and how, you know, mm-hmm. that we want to live our lives in a different way.
0: Mm-hmm. And Shannon, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in early recovery or are thinking about getting sober?
1: Yeah, I think I'd say don't worry about labeling yourself because that was a real deal for me at the beginning or don't think that your bottom has to look like other people's bottoms. It doesn't. Each of us are are individual in our own experience of this thing. So just define for yourself where you're at. And if you want to stop drinking, just then make that a choice or something that you would like to do for yourself. And it's not easy to do. So then reaching out to other people who are uh, also trying to stop drinking or decrease their drinking or doing whatever you have to do to uh, find your own personal pathway. And that the personal pathway, in the beginning, you might not know what it is. You can't know what the journey is going to look like. But like you've been telling me 10 times on this podcast, we can know what today might look like. Mm -hmm. So I can at least be in control of today. And a month from now or two months from now, you're going to know better what your pathway looks like and how bumpy it was or how easy it was or uh, how traumatizing it was. Whatever your pathway is going to be, you're going to know it down the road, but we just have to start taking the steps today. So not, even if you don't know what your pathway is, just make a start and you'll be thinking more clearly. And if you make the choice to stop using, you will start thinking more clearly. So it will be way easier to know what the pathway is going to be because our thinking clears up. And when we have a clear thinking, we can be making better decisions and better choices and more hopeful kinds of choices because we're not diluted. We're not stuck in the spiral in the hurricane of what is use and using and what am I going to use again and and that kind of chaos. And so once we stop using all that stuff settles down and then we can be thinking about what we actually want for our lives. It's good. It's really, really good. You'll the pathway, you'll learn what the journey is when you're
0: on the road. Hey Shannon, I have a karaoke suggestion for you. Are you ready for it?
1: Awesome. Yes. Please. I'm going tomorrow night.
0: Yes. Have you ever heard of Jimmy Cliff? Yes. Have you ever heard the, have you ever seen the movie Cool Runnings? No, I have not. Okay. But you basically, you, you basically sang the entire song in that last piece of advice. It's the Jimmy Cliff song. Where it's like, I can see clearly now the rain. Oh, is that one fun. I
1: know. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I got it. Okay.
0: Yeah. it's yours
1: tomorrow night i'm gonna sing it tomorrow can you, night can you make it's a dedication of that and maybe
0: like lean, lean an iphone with a camera running against a sugar caddy and record it i would love it that'd be great
1: i will i will totally i will totally do that just for you paul yes and that will help keep me sober even yes. just through tomorrow
0: and shannon i got let's, a
1: smile on my face
0: oh I love it i love it possession. and shannon let's close it out with your own personalized you might be an alcoholic if let's hear it
1: Yes, you might be an alcoholic if, yes, and this is me, you have ever driven drunk even once, even though you have lost close friends and family members in drinking and driving accidents.
0: Mm, it's so true. So true. So Shannon, thank you yeah. so much for helping myself stay sober. I can see a lot clearer now because the rain is gone. So thank you so much <laughs> for hanging out with me today, Shannon.
1: Great. Thanks, Paul.
0: Recovery All better. you might be an alcoholic if... Send me your personal you-might-be-an-alcoholic-if to info at recoveryelevator.com. You might be an alcoholic if you become a boxed wine connoisseur. This one's from Don. You might be an alcoholic if you hide boxes of wine in your closet and your home office. This one's also from Don. You might be an alcoholic while checking out a liquor store. You see the mini bags of vodka, like the mini bottles, and you start scheming and wondering, hey, is this under three ounces? Can I take this on an airplane? This one's from Stacy. You might be an alcoholic if every T-shirt or hat that you own came from a promotional giveaway at a bar. This one's also from Stacy. You might be an alcoholic if you ride a Guinness bicycle that you won at a bar. Hey, if it's got two wheels, it gets you from point A to point B. I say go ahead and ride that thing, Stacy. This last one's from Kirsten. You might be an alcoholic if it's the day before payday. and You lie to your coworker and say, hey, I lost my debit card yesterday. Can I borrow some money so I can buy dog food for my dog? But then you just go buy booze. Thank you for those contributions. And thank you, Megan, for compiling those weekly. Recovery Elevator, I mentioned earlier on February 27th, we're having our first meetup in Seattle, Washington. Details to be posted on the website soon. Hopefully no later than December 15th. We would love to have you there. So recovery elevator, think about the whole high bottom drunk thing. Do you really want to ride that elevator all the way down? Or do you want to get back on that elevator in my case? Because that elevator, it's only going down. And we got to take the steps back up. And if you stop on those steps while moving forward and rest on that handrail for a little too long, the step below you is going to look pretty attractive. So don't stop moving forward. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. You can do this.